Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. Jesper Hensen started his career as a Michelin chef before getting into fish. He was the sous chef of Sullerol Crow in Denmark, helping the famous fine dining restaurant get its first star in 2006. Then his career took a turn. Today, Jesper is the executive managing director of Fiskeri Kayan, a modern day fishmonger that has been selling sustainably sourced fish to many of the best and most famous restaurants in the world since 1999. Before we get started, I want to thank Wavy Wonders for sponsoring this episode. Today, you're going to hear Jesper talk a lot about how we can respect our seas by minding what we consume and where it comes from. Seaweed is a great example of a sea vegetable that is not only wildly delicious, but also does wonders for the environment. Wavy Wonders makes seaweed-based snacks that are delicious, easy to eat, on the go, and harness the environmental and nutritional benefits of seaweed. As it grows, seaweed sequesters carbon, reverses ocean acidification, and doesn't require any inputs like fertilizer that would further pollute the ocean. If you are hosting a conference, event, or have a workplace where you'd like to serve healthy, sustainable snacks, Wavy Wonders is a great choice. Visit their website, www.wavy-wonders.com to learn more. They're also looking to expand across Europe and the U.S., so if you are a distributor or have contact to one, please get in touch with them. All right, welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. We are sitting out at your warehouse, Fishmonger Warehouse, and rollover. And I'd love to start with the story of how Fiskarikain got started. Well, yeah, well... uh Back in uh, 1999, uh, one of my old partners, Kim, he was a fisherman, and uh, his his boat had burned, and uh, he basically, only all he had was this uh, rights to sell fish in Rungstelhavn. So he went over here, and that's a totally different part of the country, where he came from the western part of Yuland, where it's all fishermen, and basically blue collars over there. He came to Rongstel, which is probably what could be regarded as one of the most uh, high-income places in all of Denmark. And he started selling fish from the back of his van. And then over 10 years, he slowly, slowly built a company on Fiskerikan, which means the fisherman's dock in uh, in uh, Rongstel. And then I started working with him when I was a chef in uh, Sølerød Kro. And then all of a sudden, one day, he popped the question if maybe I'd like to be his partner. And I said, uh, <laughs> I don't know. And then we went sailing one day, and he talked to me about he was going to like build out the, the shop and make a proper shop and he was going to focus on like having a takeaway and all those things and still have this uh, wholesalers going on and I thought it might even actually be a really good idea because I was going to have like I just met my wife and we were talking about kids and working in the hospitality like working in restaurants and having kids this is it's a challenge and she wasn't from the business so so we needed to figure that out and I thought well maybe I'll take a chance but I had I told him that I really needed my friend Simon in also so that we would 
be two to share a responsibility. Uh, and so Simon at the time was in uh, Australia working as a, a chef and looking for something to do, like looking for a direction in his life. And when I phoned him up, he, he was just like, well, I'll be there in two days. So he actually started two days later in Rongstad. He came home from, from Australia, flew back, I think, the day after or maybe four days after or something like that. And then he was working in Rongstad. And that's when we started. I mean, it's a pretty big leap for a chef to go to being a fishmonger and fish distributor. So had you developed an early passion for fish or where did that come from that you were like, this is my life direction? Well, yeah. Well, basically, I have a huge passion for fish, and I've always had. And uh, my father was a very keen angler, and he took me out fishing already when I was like five. And I just completely fell in love with fishing and with fish in general. Uh, I remember I had to do a uh, the first like really big written assignment in the sixth grade, and it was meant to be eight pages, and I wrote thirty two pages on a on a machine like a, a writing machine. <laughs> like, I worked thirty two pages on fish, so it's basically always been the focus for me, and also was the reason that I wanted to be a chef because I would like to combine this passion for fish and fishing with actually being able to cook it. So it was always a passion of mine. And I understand that Kim was kind of a legend and that he also was just a wealth of information about the sea, the kinds of fish available in the sea. So what kind of things did you learn from him or what did he open your eyes to? Yeah, well, that was really crazy because when I started in in Sulawesi, I was in charge of purchasing and I wrote an email out to all the uh, the different purveyors we had like three different uh, fish suppliers and uh, to like just to tell them I was there and they needed to bring this like like an offer on what fish we were going to use what would be the price and what would be the issues and I realized that one of the guys was Kim I never heard about this guy Kim so I looked for an email address I phoned him up and he said well I don't really have an email and uh, but I can come up and I can show you what we've got and super old school. Yeah, super old school. <laughs> no but the thing was that all the other suppliers they weren't they weren't fishermen and he was a fisherman in his heart like like as far back as his generations went they were fishermen. So basically he he knew everything about how the fish was caught and that started like that was really interesting for me because of the passion that I had for fish and very quickly I realized that he he knew exactly what type of fish came out of what type of fishery and how sustainable it was. Like, what did it do to the surroundings when you were fishing with, for instance, Danish seine or with gill nets, and if you were fishing with trolls, and 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 just taught taught me like how can you tell the difference in quality once you mm. receive the whole fish. Mm. So yeah, he was a wealth of information and of course of context within within the the fishing business so you could go directly to the fishermen instead of going only to the auctions and that was a really really a big change for us yeah can you take us on that journey a little bit of how you learned about what a sustainable fish is and i think also how that relates to quality meaning you mentioned a bunch of different kinds of fishing so just to give a little bit of an overview of this world and what we're going to dive deeper into yeah well the the thing is that the the method of fishing is really crucial to the sustainability of the different fishing methods. Mm. So once you fish with passive gears, it means that your gears are set in a in a location in a place where you think that fish might turn up and then swim into your fishing uh, device. So that can be gill nets, 
different types of sein, like Danish sein. Do you know what sein is? No, and I also don't know what a gillnet is. Well, so. gillnet is just a regular net that that is constructed in a way so that when a fish swims close to the net, the gills will get tangled. Ah. So basically, it's a tangle net, and it and it it actually is like the fish can actually very often see these nets but they won't be able to swim around them because so they will swim like along them and all of a sudden the the net will move and it will get in touch with something like a fin or a gill or something like that and the fish will tangle itself so it's a very simple device it's been around for years i would say hundreds of years actually and um that's a very it's like probably Uh, what we get the most sustainable caught fish that we get in Denmark is caught by gill nets. And then there's, of course, lines and hooks, which is even more old school. And then there's pound nets. And lines and hooks is when we go fishing, we have a line and a hook and yeah, cast it out. Exactly. And then the last one is what? That is um, pound nets. And that's a technique that dates back to like old Egyptian times. Hmm. So that is where you pound poles into the bottom uh, of of the seabed in a in a in a place where you know there's going to be fish swimming by here so it will be on a point or it will be right next to a fjord or it would be somewhere strategically that you know fish is going to migrate past and then it it actually goes from the beach or from the the rocks or whatever like in in the, in the lower part of the water so near the shore and it will go out into the water And it will actually create this wall where the fish will swim by this wall, and then it will come inside what is called the head. So it actually is like a labyrinth where the fish can swim out of. And then you have the fish live inside the head, and then you go up with your little dinghy, and then you take up the bottom of the net. So they're inside the net, and you just take up the bottom, and then you very gently take out the fish from the net, and then you go back the next day to see if there's any fish in there. Wow. How does a fisherman decide which technique to use? Does it depend on the fish or is it like preference? Yeah, well, the thing is that I think back in the day, everybody was fishing sustainably with, with gill nets, with lines and hooks and with pound nets and with uh, with fish traps also. Um, that was what everyone was fishing with. And then in the 1930s, they developed the diesel engine. And the diesel engine was very strong compared to steam engines. And they were able to drag nets so instead of actually putting the nets out and waiting for the fish to swing in them then you could take nets behind your boat and then weigh them down and then drag them behind the boat and then start going to look for the fish where they were so fishing actively so i think that some people just stick with gill netting and then they were taught that by their fathers and then that was what they were fishing with. A very good example of that is Langeu, where we get a lot of the sustainably caught fish that we have from. And in that port, everybody fished with gill nets. There's no one fishing with trolls. And I think that was because chance, basically. It's very far out in the western part of Lolland, so they didn't have a lot of influence from other uh, fishing boats in that area. There's not a lot of ports right Uh, near it so they just didn't nobody ever started trolling and then basically everybody was fishing with gill nets and with pound nets so uh -huh. i think that's why it sort of just happened over time with this uh trolling techniques 
that is that is used a lot now and which is really harmful for and biodiversity. Let's talk about trawling. What is it? Why is it harmful for biodiversity? Well, as we talked about, when we fish with passive gears, we basically put our nets and our, our traps on the seabed and we leave them there. So there's no actual, uh, there is no destruction of marine habitat when you fish like that, or very very little destruction of marine habitat. This is completely different when you're trawling. When you're trawling, you're you're catching a huge variety of fish because it's not selective and and you're catching a lot of fish that might be too small you're catching a lot of sea creatures that that you weren't intended to catch and what is even more uh, crucial or, or, or problematic to use a better word is that it destroys the habitat mm. so it destroys all the hiding places for juvenile fish it uh, disrupts what happens on the t- on on the top of the seabed, and um, and that's because you're basically dragging a big net across the entire yeah. ocean floor. So shovels, actually. Shovels, yes, yeah. great. But th- all of that is just kind of like digging up what's ever there and trying to catch all of it, but mm-hmm. with no discrepancy, as you mentioned. Exactly. So what what these passive gears, these low impact or sustainable gears, also are is that they're very selective. You can decide the size of fish they want to catch. You can decide basically. You can't go down to say I only want to catch cod, but you can go down to say I want to catch cod and cod like fish. Mm. So I will also catch maybe haddock or hake or something like that when I'm catching the fishing for cod with gillnets. And when you say like fish, that's because the size is the same? Exactly, the, the size of the, the head, place? the size. So basically uh, the mesh on, on the actual gillnets, they decide what type, like what size of fish you want to catch. So if the meshes are really big, then the, the smaller fish will swim through them. They won't get tangled or they will have a very hard time getting tangled mm. also. And basically also the same. If you don't want to catch the big fish, you can go down to smaller mesh and then they really won't get tangled unless they're really unlucky. So you will go fishing for Dover sole with sole gill nets and you'll basically only catch Dover sole. You will go fishing for like flatfish like plaice and flounder, you will only catch fish like plaice, flounder and dab and the occasional turbot. But if you want to really catch turbot, then you need to go up to a bigger mesh and then you will put out turbot gillnets. So mm. it's super selective, which means that the gillnet fisherman needs to adapt or he is able to adapt to whatever fish is in season. And you can only catch the fish that are moving. So the fish will be moving for two reasons. Either it's for food or it's for spawning. That's the only two reasons why it will be migrating. So you can catch them when they're moving from from one food to another. So, for instance, the cod will be in the lower water in springtime because it's eating crab, and that's when you know the the shore crabs and 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 um, the brown crabs they. Uh, they will be in the lower water and they will still be really slow because the water temperature is not up, but they will be out. And that makes it really easy for the cod to catch them. So it will be in the lower waters. But then later in the season, the the menu for the cod will shift into sand eels or herring or spats or whatever. And they will be in a deeper, like another depth. And then you can find them moving between the different depths looking for fish. Mm. But for instance, with the turbot, it's very hard to catch that. Unless it's spawning. You, we, we catch, I think, most of them when they're spawning because that's when they really move around. But the turbot basically sits there and waits. <laughs> so it will find a really good area where it likes to be. And when there's food coming by, it'll just sit there on, on the bottom waiting for fish to, to emerge. But it still moves around if, if it needs to change the menu. 
I mean, listening to you, I can hear that you know a lot about the fish that are in your portfolio. But what also strikes me is that you know their diets, you know where they hang out, you know where they're moving, you know a lot about their behavior. And yet the ocean is something that for many, while it's close, it's kind of hidden because it's far out and a lot of fishing takes place far off from the coastline. It's also underwater, it's dark, it's mysterious, it's not something that you can just go and observe what the turbot's doing and if it's moving or not. That's not easy for most. So I want to relate that a little bit to the fact that we have to have a lot more respect for the ocean and respect for the biodiversity within it, but how we can almost build that relationship to better understand how much is going on down there and how important it is to conserve. Well, that's that's basically what Fiskerikan is all about. That is the catch line for Fiskerikan, respect the sea. This is what we say. We need to respect the sea. But I think it actually, what we first of all need to do as, as people that or humans that want to eat that what nature brings us um, is that we need to accept that we're part of the system. So whatever we exclude from cities and from agriculture ends up in the sea. And, and, and basically whatever, when we're fishing, then we need to respect the marine habitat. If we want marine habitat to survive, then, then basically we need to respect it. And respecting the sea means that we want to, be able to have the last wild food in the world. We, that's what we're doing here. We're, we're selling fish. So basically we're harvesting biodiversity. That's what we're doing. Mm. But if we have a strong biodiversity, there's no reason why we shouldn't really use it because as you said, it's underneath the surface. It's not our world. The, that's the marine world. We belong on land. We're a mammal that lives on land. And, and those, they are fish that live in the sea. And biodiversity, if the biodiversity is really strong, down there, if the marine habitat is really strong, if we help not to exclude that many nutrients into the water, then the marine habitat will recover. Mm -hmm. It's very, very, it's very, I think actually it's, it's more, it's better at it than we actually give it credit for. But I saw this really interesting documentary uh, where they went out to the Bikini Atolls where they dropped basically a bomb that is twice the size of the bombs, they, the big boy that they threw. So they took away all the people that were living there and they dropped the bomb and they blew a giant hole like a, uh, with an atomic bomb in the middle of the... Ocean. Yeah, middle of the Pacific. And they went, went back, what, 30, 40 years after to see... Well, what was going on? Like, how did it look? And they didn't expect anything. But what they found when they went under the surface was because it had been left alone for so long, they were seeing like crazy amount of life, life like so many species and like really, really endangered species and species they didn't see anywhere else and only because they left it alone. Yeah. Another really good example is in Öresund. Mm. So Öresund is the narrow strait that is between Denmark and Sweden. And that hasn't been trolled since 1932 because of the heavy ship traffic that goes through in the strait. You couldn't have trolling there. So it hasn't been trolled since 1932. The biodiversity is more, more than 10 times higher in Öresund than it is in all of Kattegat, which is about uh, maybe eight or 900 times bigger. Mm. Like the water mass is that much bigger. And it's actually said that it might have 20 to 30 times more biomass of fish inside Uyosun. The only difference being it's not trolled. Whereas Kattegat is one of the heaviest trolled areas in the world because of the 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 Norwegian lobster or the, the langoustine which is trolled there. Yeah. And I, I love you made an analogy to me earlier that 
it's kind of like what we do in the ocean is kind of like if we went in the forest and cut down everything just so we could eat a quail and like quail was the only thing we cared about or something else. And no one would ever stand for that. But because these things can happen outside of our peripheral, then like the craziest things go down. And it, 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 it's the more I learn about it, the more my mind is just totally boggled. Yeah, I think that and this is this is not I, I know I share this vision that in 50 years, we will look upon trolling and trolling techniques as being like burning witches. How didn't we understand that we were part of the system? When, if we wanted to fish, why didn't we understand that the marine habitat created the fish debris? A lot of fishermen, like older fishermen, like I don't blame them because like the bounty of the sea is absurd. You know, it's there's so much out there and it's a huge area and it's like there's so much water. But they always said that the sea provides us. Mm -hmm. There's always more in the sea. And I, I, I hope now that they realize that's not the case, you know, <laughs> that that yeah. that there is actually a limit to what the, the, the ocean can provide us with. But for centuries, we didn't fish with these harm, harmful fishing techniques. We didn't overfish because basically we didn't have the tools to do it. And and that would be a really hard thing for us if if we went back to only fishing with sustainable gear. But I would say maybe... 0.1% of all the money that's gone into actually like new technology for fishing has, has gone into like low impact fisheries. I would say 99.9% .9 of all the funding that's gone into actually creating more sustainable fishing has gone into making trolls better. Mm. And it's like beside the point, you know, you can't like, you can't, it's, it's like you can't fix that. You yeah. can't fix trolling. Trolling will still have negative bottom impact and will have a huge impact on the nature underneath. But the reason we trawl is for scale, right? And the conventional farming. I know, I'm, I'm actually not sure when you were talking earlier if the passive methods are for wild-caught fish or yes. for... Because we also have aquaculture where you have fish farms where you're oh, specifically yeah, yeah. growing Definitely. fish. Yeah. So it, is that in the sustainable realm of what you consider here? At well, yeah, fine, I, I would say, well, if it wasn't for aquaculture, basically I would be out of business. So I, uh, the way that it looks in Fiskerikan is that about 40% of what we sell comes from aquaculture, 30% of what we sell comes from trolls, and 30% comes from sustainable fishing methods. So Why, we, why would you be out of business? if? Because that's 40% of our business. And okay. basically we wouldn't have any fish to sell if we didn't have aquaculture. And we have more and more interesting species coming from aquaculture also, which is taking off the pressure of the wild stock. So uh, basically the, the, the biggest problem with aquaculture is that we are harvesting wildlife to put inside our farm fish. Mm. Like So we go out and we fish with pelagic trolls, which is not like dredging trolls, but it's pelagic trolls. So it fishes midwater after pelagic species that we don't eat. Um, and then we make fish meal out of it, like blue whiting. Or, and these stocks are quite e easily determined how many of them are there. But we and we say there's about 65% wild fish in the feed and the rest is made of rapeseed or soy or whatever when they give it to the fish. So you create more than one kilo uh, salmon out of a kilo of fish meal. So it's like the food conversion rate is better when mm. we do it like mm. that. So it's part of the, it's definitely part of the solution to be working with the sea as, as a farming in the sea. And that's another interesting fact. So we've got 6,000 years of, 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 uh, of uh, experience with farming on land and we've got like 40, 50 years, basically, of farming in the sea. So that can be 
done a lot more sustainable than what it is. And land-based farming is one of them. So taking it up on land and being able to clean whatever you need to exclude and use that in a sustainable way. There is a lot of techniques out there. There's so much happening, uh, innovation happening in this space. And I had Hatch Accelerator on the program once. They run an accelerator program for all kinds of aquaculture startups between Bergen and Norway, Hawaii and Singapore, which are all big fishing places. But he said in that episode that fishing is like 10 years behind conventional on-land agriculture. So we have an opportunity to not repeat history and do it differently. And there's a lot of activity in this space. And Mm. I see the same with money just coming in and people investing in ocean tech and Mm. all that stuff. Yeah, I was saying Norcard is a really good example of that. So Norcard is the first like commercially grown uh, card, basically the card that that is like used to be everywhere down here. You know, you couldn't go out to the, the coast and drop a line without catching a card. You would always say, I went to fish on the coast as a child or as a teenager. And, and you would like, if when you met another fisherman, you would always say like, did you catch anything? You were only referring to trout. Hmm. So you would always say, yeah, well, I didn't have any today. I only caught a couple of cod. You never catch cod on the coast anymore. Never. And that's due to a lot of factors, definitely fishing, but also to, to the protection of seals and the protection of cormorants. So we've protected these coastal animals, like it's the biggest predators that we have. We protected them completely. So now we have lots and lots of seals, like, I don't know, the, the, I think it's like 32,000 spotted seal and maybe it's like 20,000 gray seals. And gray seals weigh up to 300 kilos. They eat like three to five kilos of fish every day, all these fish. And that's like, just take those numbers, you know, that's like 150,000 kilos of fish that are being caught like coastally. And then you have the comorants where you have 32,000 pairs in Denmark which is 64,000 individuals on the last count. And and then every year we get a lot of cormorants coming down from Norway and Sweden. It's about 250 to 300,000 cormorants and they eat 400 to 500 grams of fish a day coastally. Hmm. So there's no, like, that's why we don't have cod here. The biggest problem with all the eel, like why we don't have European eel anymore, it's like, I saw this uh, research about it, like it's a scientific article that that fishing saltwater fishing after eel only stands for 3% of the of, of, of the actual deadliness within the European eel. The rest comes from waterworks and from birds. So we've we've protected all these species. Yeah. They're also part of the system and the system is exactly. in imbalance. We need to fix the system. We need to look at all the system to create the best system. And But listen, I'm sitting here trying to figure out in my head like, how do we keep the balance? Meaning, we need to consume, we need to feed the people, but we also want to conserve the biodiversity. And how do we still continue to eat without tipping the balance in one direction or the other or making a move there? Do I get to be the dictator? Yeah, like, tell get to me decide? what you think, yeah, well, please. So, uh, if I'm the dictator, we stop trolling tomorrow. Okay. If, if I'm the dictator, because that, like, that would make it fair for everyone if we just stopped. We just everywhere stop trolling everywhere every like and then we needed to look at how does do we want nature to nature to look like like do we want all these seals do we need all these seals basically what is more important to save the Baltic cod or to have more seals like we need to make tough decisions and I need I think that we need to li- limit the number of seals that we have we need to limit the number of cormorants that we have and we need to protect the most endangered species being eel and cod. And 
the abundance of cod is like it used to be everywhere like in the baltics it used to be everywhere even when i started working with langer the first year we got 90 tons of cod down there they're only allowed to catch 1400 like you know it's nothing 42 kilos a day there's no cod left so we need to protect endangered species first yeah, and but it just makes me think with the seal, we did the same thing, right, with endangered species. So you also have to be careful there. Yeah, exactly. Well, there used to be zero seals left. Mm-hmm. You know, in the 1960s, there were zero seals. Now we have a lot of seals, but we don't have any cod. So we need to do it the other way around now. And part of the issue with cod was the quotas, right? And that we just totally overfished the stock that we had. Exactly, because the way that the quotas is, is made is that ISIS, which is like go out and measure all the fish that there that is in the sea and tries to figure out how much fish is there, they come back with a recommendation to the EU and then the EU uh, actually they uh, have like a meeting with all the fisheries ministers and then they decide the TARC and that's the total allowed quota. So you know that is the target is always higher than ISIS recommends because it's like it's it's they need to agree on this if you can overfish this species then we will overfish this species all the species overfish because it's something that is like it can't be like that you need to be more like Norway and say fish this or don't fish this like <laughs> and that, that's the problem with the EU is that we're too many countries that have to agree on it and it makes it very hard for us to make tough calls yeah. And that's also something that really blows my mind in this space is that the ocean is such a shared resource. So how you regulate it, how you make sure that everybody shares it. Yeah. It's a mind boggling question that, you know, we're still all trying to work and figure out. But yeah, yeah I, I keep I, I'm just I'm just how beginning about ocean my credits. That, that was my thought. The like ocean let's because I work with sustainability. So basically, I'm I'm out of sales. I'm out of purchase. All I work with is sustainability. I work with sustainability for the whole company that I work with. And and so I look a lot at, at this. And, and my feelings about this is that we have yet to put a value on life in the sea. We have yet to put a value on thriving areas. How much value does that actually create? So if we could create ocean currency that everyone was allowed a part of ocean currency to use. You could create more ocean currency if you made reefs, for instance. If you created more life, you would get more currency to use. Mm -hmm. So I think that the way to go is like to actually put a value on life in the sea. Let's put a value on life in the sea. Let's find out what actually, like, because we don't know, we know a lot about CO2 emissions on land, like what happens with CO2 emissions. We've got all that, like, basically the GHG protocol, we got that figured out. But what we need now to figure out is the biodiversity question, the loss of biodiversity. Like we're within the sixth mass, mass extinction, death, mass mm-hmm. extinction, but it did start 50,000 years ago when we <laughs> killed all the mammoths. And so basically it's, 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 we need to put some sort of like the, the biodiversity needs to have its own like currency, just like the CO2 emission is measured in tons. We need yeah. to measure biodiversity, loss of biodiversity and creating biodiversity. We need to measure that also. And I'd love to talk a little bit about how Fiskerikine works, meaning you have sustainability, respect for the sea in focus. And then what do you actually do here? Like, how do you then put this into practice and get people eating more sustainably? Well, we've done it for a long time. So we started in 2011 and there was no focus on on catching methods back then. But we uh, got in touch with Greenpeace at the time. It was a girl called Henne Lundvinder. Uh, and she was the first one really to put like 
more focus on this with the catching techniques and what happened underneath the surface when we were fishing with the passive gears and when you were fishing with active gears and and we found out that you know we really wanted to do something about this this was back in 2011 and we found out very quickly that the msc wasn't going to help us with anything because and the msc is the marine stewardship council yes yeah. so the msc or the marine stewardship council um like claims that they're a sustainability uh, like, like certification, but they're not, um, in my opinion. So I, I don't know if you're going to do anything else on this, but I I am I don't think that you can be a sustainability certification and be certifying trawlers. You know, you know, we it's again it's about the whole system. It's not about one single species. It's about the whole system and the biodiversity, yeah. and we're a part of it. So we started back then, and then we worked with Langer, and we wanted more people to buy fish from Langer because whenever they bought fish from Langer, we could tell the story about this small fishing port that was fishing sustainably and fishing the western part of the Baltics and getting all this variety of seasonal fish and getting really, we could get the fish directly from them, which meant that we got a lot of like really really fresh fish we got it within like 12 hours after catching and, and it was i'm in your processing facility today and it just makes me think how alive your product is like it comes in fresh it's still alive in some cases and then you're you know yeah. sending it out same day to the restaurant yeah. so yeah yeah so so that that's like we started putting like selling the card as lange card selling the turbot as lange turbot we we created these like product names inside our system and that was actually without even knowing it the first time we worked with selling sustainable products. So that put focus on regionality or locality, yeah. exact, like exactly. naming the Storytelling ocean. Storytelling that the, mm. the, the, the fishermen could use. Oh, not the fishermen, sorry, the, the, the chefs could use uh, when they were presenting their menus. It was storytelling from the beginning that was the most important thing about doing this. But then again, putting a strong focus because we could say that whenever it was caught in Lange, it would be sustainably caught. And then in 2014... Uh, was created the FSCO, so for uh, the Union of Small Scale Fishermen that are fishing sustainably in Denmark. And you only had one fisheries union before, so you had all fishermen in the same union, even though they had all different like interests. And it's controlled by basically who pays the most. You pay a share of what you actually land, so the big trawlers had the biggest say. Hmm. And that wasn't good for the small scale fishermen. So they created their own union and we were there for the founding process and we we're a big part of like trying to like actually saying that you should do this because this will be like this is the only way to go because then you can start talking directly to the politicians and then you could talk only about the interests of like small scale low impact fishermen so basically the high demands for traceability was also a really good thing for us because then we everybody needed to tell like how was the fish caught so the traceability process is like you need to tell where it was caught and how it was caught right and all of a sudden you had to make that transparent to everyone who was purchasing fish and that was because of the fsk union so the that was actually just i think it was because uh, to stop overfishing or to stop fish, okay. fish like overfishing and illegal fishing. Because if you have traceability on something, you can always say, okay, it was caught by this boat, it was caught in this area, and it was caught by by this method. And if you weren't able to say that, you could say, well, it's illegal fish. And how do they know that? I mean, I, I know people talk about blockchain, but this doesn't sound like you're using no, blockchain, blockchain or anything. No, but you need to be able to re refer to it whenever. So when the, the health authorities come here to check everything, they will always check for traceability. They will pick out 
like different parties of fish that you have inside your cooler and they would say where was this caught and then you have to go back and then show it was caught here and it was bought through the auction or was bought in langer and then they go back to the fisherman in langer and say on this day did you land this fish oh wow so that's actually how they do it yeah. okay interesting yeah and that was a good thing for us because then it became transparent then all our our competitors had to show how the fish was caught and because we had this strong focus on purchasing fish which was caught with with uh, sustainable methods then we we would always like to show whatever we found hmm. you know but we we took the position very like like we will be a like a regular fishmonger with a strong focus on sustainability. So we 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 are talking about when do we stop trawling, like when do we stop selling trawls, but actually we're making a huge impact being everywhere because we can advise our customers to go this direction or go this direction. Yeah, and you mentioned that some fish you still have to buy from trawling, like yeah. shrimp, you know, shrimp, and yeah. if you want to serve the customers and satisfy them with your portfolio, yeah. you have to have shrimp to sell yeah. to restaurants. Yeah, and shrimp, the Pendulus boyalis, which is the North Sea shrimp, which is also caught up by Canada and it's caught like in the North Sea, basically, and we also have it locally here. That's just this, like a huge item because that's like something we we eat in in numbers, yeah. like and, and all types of restaurants serve it. So. And why restaurants? You send, sell mainly to restaurants. It's not possible, for, or is it possible for consumers to buy directly well, we from you? We did have four fish shops, regular fish counters, but we stopped because the fish, like being in, like working in, in retail, I think it is. No, it's not retail. The title, I don't even know. Like working, retail, yeah. Like, like, like being a retailer, it, it's very hard in Denmark because people, they go to the supermarket. They don't go to the fishmonger anymore, like, not like they used to. We could see that like our customer profile was just by the year getting older. So we needed to like, it was very hard to make money unless we were actually there in person doing it. If we had people there selling, it was very hard for us to make money. And yeah, the it, storytelling, right? Like, you yeah, need to eat this, and this is exactly. how you cook it. Yeah, and we, we had four shops at a time. Then we we just closed the last one or sold it back to Kip's son. <laughs> okay, yeah, Kip's full son. circle there. Yeah, exactly. Like Kip's son, he he got it now in Rotunden in Hillerup. He has that one. And the one we have in Rungstad is also one of some of our old uh, employees having that one. And the one in uh, Torhelen also is continued by our old employees, which still purchase fish through here. Sometimes they also purchase other places. It's not like it was a deal, but. And as a fishmonger, you do a lot of marketing oh, and yeah. kind of, I wouldn't call it untraditional marketing, but more than a fishmonger is known to do. So what's the idea or the strategy there in terms of hmm. how you think about marketing? Well, Yelte, who is the managing director of Fiskerikain, and uh, he's also my very good friend. We met each other when we were working in Sylvod Kro, so we worked as chefs together. And he's he is really good at being like political and taking a stand for stuff, and so am I. So we have re- like, I think when you have really strong opinions and you feel that you need to communicate them, and if you could can put those values into something like respect the sea as we've done there so if everything can blossom from there to be like about respect so we did respect the sea we did respect people about uh like for instance uh, when we had world pride in copenhagen last year so we uh we did this like with a rainbow colored fish but we actually mean it you know like it's mm-hmm. it's it's not like we're trying to buy it. like we will we will work to earn the respect you know and and then we did also uh 
respect the sea, respect the restaurants we did during COVID because the way that that COVID was handled in in Denmark, it was like the restaurants didn't know what to think. Yeah, and, that was and, true everywhere in the world. It's yeah, very hard. And it was super hard on them. And these are people that we work with every day and we're chefs ourselves. And basically, we can easily put ourselves in their situation. So we did this whole respect the restaurants. Come on, like get out there and use your restaurants. changing your logo again. or like running a campaign? Like what form oh, does basically that Basically, it was campaigning, I think. Uh, for respect the restaurants, we did like a full-scale campaign. And we actually had a message that we wanted to send through to the government is that you're you're actually letting like the most important uh, culinary uh, society baby like that we have like Copenhagen basically you're letting this like you're you're willing to sacrifice this like you're sending everybody home like all the international people working here you're sending them home like this is this is this is creativity and knowledge that we need here you know mm. so that was a very clear message and we went as we went to politiken which is a major danish uh, newspaper newspaper and we did like a full page <laughs> where like uproar which yeah. means like like i don't know if, like, uproar it means uproar yeah uproar yeah, yeah. exactly mm. for the danish government wake up you're killing restaurants you know yeah. and respect the restaurants respect what they're doing for society what they're doing for for the city in general like if we didn't have this thriving gastronomical scene in Copenhagen, it would just be a boring place. And as you mentioned, we do have a thriving gastronomy scene in Copenhagen, but also in the rest of the Nordics, and some would even call it the epicenter of the food world. And I'm wondering what role you see restaurants playing, plus yourself playing, in terms of encouraging more biodiversity on menu in menus, encouraging more storytelling about where fish comes from, how we can buy better fish. Mm. How do you work with restaurants in that regard to try and get this to spread out and create different buying habits? Well, I have to say that that uh, one of the things that's worked best for us is to create opportunity, like to create something that, like for instance, we heard about this guy. He was uh, trying to fish, this is years ago, he was trying to fish for this snail that is abundant. It's called the conch snail, the whelk, but there was no fishing for it back then. And it's called by 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 parts and and then we got the product and we took it out to restaurants and said you should really use this because this is this is a threat to biodiversity because again we don't have any we don't have enough predators to eat them we don't have enough cod to eat them so they're just like booming the same thing with the shore crab like and then we see like how can we actually take this product make sure that it's good enough for the chefs and then teach them how to use it like give them to yeah. them and use their you know we don't teach them a lot like we, we just bring them ideas yeah but your background as yes. chefs probably we, we helps a lot able, in that you, regard but you also need to be able to recognize when a product is something that you can use and when it's not because we yeah. have to like get presented with products why don't you sell sea snails not not sea snails uh, starfish mm. and then we taste them once and it's like that's not possible. Yeah. <laughs> and that's good to know. Okay, so you help them in terms of realizing where new opportunities might be. And yeah, and then, then shifting the focus. For instance, tomorrow we're going to do, like, we're going to be there. We're going to do this, like, uh, seafood day at Benegal. And what is being served, basically, is only things that are um, invasive or is somehow uh, out of balance. So, for instance, the shore crab, there's too many shore crabs, and it's eating all the food that the fish should be eating. Plus, it's eating a lot of fish eggs. Uh, 
uh, and there's no predators that are eating it because there's no cod left. So you, we need to eat more shore crabs. That's on the menu. Then we have like blue blue mussels on the menu because it's a regenerative food. Then we have um, the whelks on the menu also. So basically it's all these, and then seaweed, of course. Right. I mean, of course there's restaurants that can spread the message and create awareness around new things you can eat. And then maybe you introduce that in your diet, which helps biodiversity. But in general, when consumers go down to the supermarket in Denmark or any else, anywhere else in the world, what can they look for? Normally, we'd say the Marine Stewardship Council certification, which would kind of be like seeing an organic label that that can guide you towards knowing this is a good thing to buy. Mm. But there are potentially some issues there. So what else can people do to try and get better fish and more diverse fish um, well, first of all, you should go to the fishmonger, not to the supermarket. Mm-hmm, there that's, you go. That's the first thing. But that's that's speaking for the Danish society, because if you go to Spain or if you go to France, then supermarkets will have a wide variety of fish. Yeah, in Denmark, uh, you don't have a lot. It's no, like very... It's like cod, sometimes plays, and then salmon. Which is shocking, because there's literally water everywhere. You yeah, think there would we be love more. our pigs, you know. We have more pigs in Denmark than we have... Six times more pigs in Denmark than we have people. So... I think I think you know, or is it ten times? I don't even remember. like. It's just not in that culture, unfortunately. Not as much as it should be. Yeah. Um, I think we're an agricultural country, so that's why it ended up like that. More than we're a fishing country. We are a seaf- seafaring nation too, but yes, I agree. We could expand, and even <laughs> then, when I go, uh, even thinking of fish stores, I, I know where my family in New Jersey would go, but. Asking the right questions or knowing if you're mm, buying a good exactly. product. Like, what well, can first, you do? Well, you should definitely focus on how it was caught. So if you pick up a, 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 a pack of fish in the supermarket, it's on there. You can tell if it's caught by trolls, if it's caught by line, and if it's caught by whatever. Oh, it says it. Yeah, it does too. So. Oh. It has to. It I has to. Traceability it. has to be on there. And uh, I think in the supermarkets, they need to write it specifically. But other than that, you can go in and then you can just write catching methods fish in google and it will pop up a sheet uh, if you scroll down you'll find and there will be abbreviations of the different types of fishing methods um that you can see and then you can use that so always go for the fish that is the the the, the fish that is caught with sustainable gear that's number one uh, if you're in denmark look for and ask for naturskonsum which is a uh, certification which is uh, a, uh, is a governmentally controlled certification for fish that is caught with low impact uh, sustainable fishing gear and from a uh, and from stocks that are healthy so that that is the only governmentally controlled uh, certification for fish. And I would have to say that's the way to go because we can't have private interests, like economic interests from private companies in certifications. That's not a pos- that's not possible. And then it won't work. Yeah. And now I'd love to ask you the last four questions that everyone gets asked as we wrap up here. And the first is, what is your vision for the future of food in some 10 to 15 years from now? I hope that we will recognize that we're part of the ecosystem. So there will be a, a the challenge will be how to create a food system that works with uh, the ecosystems, that works as, as we can still harvest from the ecosystems, but how do we create ecosystems that are strong and biodiversity that's strong? And how do we fit in there? That will be... I hopefully how it's going to look so it will be not able to get whatever you want but able to get what is what is actually available 
Mm. So we'll have to come away from this whole supermarket thought that we can get whatever we want whenever, at least fresh. And then we'll probably sometimes have to buy fish frozen because that was the only way to get it when it was when it was caught sustainably. And what do you think we're missing to get there and have that be our reality? Well, we need to recognize that we're part of the system. Mm. That's that's when we need to get there. That's how we need to get there. We have to look at ourselves as being part of the whole system. Yeah. And even for me, the thought of understanding the seasonality of fish, I think I could personally do way better on that and knowing what's in <laughs> season and what's not. I know that with my fruits and vegetables, but not so much with my animals. So that's homework for me. Yeah. We've created the Fiskeri Kailena, which means the Fiskeri oh, Kailena. <laughs> We've created that. I think it's on our webpage. You can take a look at that. And it, that actually only takes, uh, it actually only looks at seasonality from a uh, low impact. Uh, I'll link to that so yeah, people can check it out. You should do that. And we'll also have a lot of videos that we recorded here that I'll share on my Instagram at okay. Nordic Food Tech. Um, but two more questions for you. One is that we also have listeners from all over. And I always like to ask, what collaborations are you looking for or help are you looking for? Because you never know what will bounce back in your inbox and what we can, you know, wave a magic wand to solve. Well, hey, if there's anyone out there that's working with uh, silk-cultured seafood uh, that wants to be in touch with Fiskerikain, then please get in touch with us because we are definitely looking at silk-cultured seafood to be in a part of the future. Oh, you do? And you, you think that's sustainable? I know there's some debate around that too of if it is or isn't and does it remove us further from nature or not well we need to remove ourselves further from nature that's for sure because we need to create space for nature so if we can create proteins that are healthy and that um that doesn't harm animals and that can help us have another focus than harvesting on biodiversity then i think that's a good idea i think that is the future and what would be the best way for someone in that space to get in touch with you well, shoot us an email. Yes, but at Fiskrikan. Perfect. Yes. And I encourage everyone to follow you on Instagram and check out what you're doing because you're, you're doing a great job in terms of creating more awareness around fish. Thank you. All right. That's all for today. So what were your thoughts on this episode? I'd love to hear them. Feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram or email me at nordicfoodtechpodcast at gmail.com. If you really liked it, consider becoming a patron and supporting the show for a few dollars every month. The link to do so is in the show notes or visit www.nordicfoodtech.io. Your contribution will make all the difference and enable me to tell more good stories about how we're creating a better future through food. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.